Welcome everyone to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo. Before we get started, I want to thank everybody for listening and also thank the contributors to my show, who are executive producers, Candice Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, and Ms. Aida, psychic and author of Who Do Cleansing Protection Magic, and binaural production engineer, Damian Keller, author of Sounds Good, Sounds Great, and monthly co-host, Jared Murphy, author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us. If you are interested in contributing to this podcast, go to everythingimaginable2020.com and you'll find everything you need there to contribute. Now, without further ado, our guest for today is Robert Sullivan. Thank you for coming on today. Well, thank you, Gary, for having me on Everything Imaginable. It's my pleasure to be here. And you have written some books on the occult and Hollywood. Um, I was looking at list list some of the movies, and um, I mean, I'm not a real big pop culture type of movie person, but one of the movies that did stick out to me was an old Hammer film called The Devil Rides Out. And that was a classic. Yeah, that that's a that's a good one. Um, I, I have it here on Blu-ray. It's uh, it, it's a it's a good movie. I like it as well. Um, it doesn't it it doesn't really. Um, what's funny with that movie is it's never mentioned. It comes out in 1968. It comes out the same year Rosemary's Baby comes out. It's a few years before The Exorcist and a little bit before The Omen. But that movie never creeps into the conversation when you get into kind of what you would call the satanic trio. Uh, you know, with the exorcist, the omen and Rosemary's baby, the devil writes out, never enters into the conversation. It's just, Oh, it's a hammer movie. Um, and I think the reason for that is it doesn't have the dystopian ending that the other ones have, but it, it's a good movie. Um, it's one of the rare ones where Lee, Christopher Lee plays the good guy, doesn't mm-hmm. play the villain. Um, and that is of course a book, um, it was based on the book by Dennis Wheatley, uh, who is an interesting character as well. And, uh, the, the villain in that, of course, is, is an Aleister Crowley analog, Mokata. And uh, again, I guess it's an example of synchro mysticism or synchronicity is uh, the, um, the book. The book, I think, was, comes out in the 30s or 40s, maybe the 50s. I, I'd have to go look. Um, and then, of course, Ira Levin writes the uh, Rosemary's Baby. And, of course, the movie of Rosemary's Baby and... Uh, Devil Rides Out coming in the same year of 1968. And uh, Levin, Levin actually pays homage to um, Wheatley in Rosemary's Baby because the Black Magician has the same name. It's Mercado, um, phonetically the same as Mokada. Um, and again, the guy, the guy uh, that Sidney Blackmere plays in Rosemary's Baby, Baby is another one of those Crowley analogs. So, yeah, I, I always like The Devil Rides Out. Um, I have it here on Blu-ray. It's a good one. Um, yeah, so... Interesting. I didn't know about that connection between that and Rosemary's Baby. Another movie I was thinking about, um, though I didn't see in the list, but I, I have to assume that you're familiar, familiar with it, is The Mask of Red Death. Oh, yeah, of course. Um, yeah, I mean, it's never a movie that I've analyzed, but I, it's, a, it's a great film. Um, I'm very familiar with it. That's one of my all-time favorites, actually, that you, start, you, you hit on with. Uh, that's uh, the Roger Corman um, this is one of his mm-hmm. Edgar Allan Poe movies with Vincent Price. Um, I, I think that's probably the best one of the of the series that he did. Um, you know, Tomb of Legia, uh, Pit and the Pendulum, House of Usher. Those are all great films as well. But Mask of the Red Death really pops. Uh, it really stands out. It has the, um, I mean, it just has a great story with it. Um, it's very well acted. Um, it's very creepy, uh, you know, and it works very well. Um, I, I've, I've watched, again, that's another one here I have on Blu-ray. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a great film. Um, definitely one of my favorites, no question about it. <laughs> one of mine, too. Yeah. And also when I was reading in the bio, you mentioned some stuff about 9-11 things. Um, but one of them that I didn't see that were, it sort of predicts 9-11, oddly enough, is The Big Lebowski. I've never seen the movie. Um, I've never seen The Big Lebowski, so I'd have to, in order to... Um, you know, for me to comment on that, I'd have to, uh, I'd have to see the movie. What's, what's the, uh, what's the, uh, what's, what's, what happens? In it? Uh, I forget all the 911 symbolism in there. I'd have to Google it actually to look it up, but there's a whole bunch of different, uh, symbolism in it that referenced the 911 event prior to it happening. 
yeah, I'd, I'd have to. Uh, I'd ha- I haven't seen the movie. Um, I, I mean, I've seen pieces of it here and there over mm-hmm. the years, but it's actually one that I've never actually gotten around to sit down and watching. It's one of those movies that kind of fell through the cracks for me. Um, but no, uh, some of the stuff with nine eleven, especially right up to the uh, event, uh, is quite astounding. Um, I'm actually contemplating um, in my next book actually doing just a chapter on the nine eleven stuff. So if I do that. I will definitely check out the Big Lebowski beforehand. So, what are some of the nine eleven ones? Oh yeah, well, some of them are very. I mean, it's it's quite astounding. Um, I'm absolutely convinced that the the nine eleven symbolism or the references um, or the iconography, however you want to describe it, is coming out of the realm of the supernatural. I don't believe this is man made or a product of of a human hand. I mean, granted, it's in there, but I, I, I believe that its appearance is, is much more on a supernatural level. Um, I mean, some of the ones that just come off right off the top of my head was uh, the very year of 9-11. In March of that year, you had the X-Files spinoff called The Lone Gunman. I remember uh, that one. Yeah. De- debut. Um, I believe it was in March of 01, and that involved the plot of that, that pilot episode involved the false flag operation where terrorists hijacked airliners and crashed them into the World Trade Centers. Quite astounding. That is this is a few months beforehand. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then you had, I mean, then you know, you had the slate of Gnostic movies coming out at the turn of the millennium uh, that a lot of them reference uh, 9-11. You have uh, The Matrix, uh, where Neo's uh, passport expires on September 11th, 2001. Uh, we have Donnie Darko, which was released actually um, after 9-11, but was filmed beforehand, um, came out in October of 01, mm-hmm. um, where we had the American flag in Donnie's room and a jet engine crash uh, crashed through it. Um, and actually, Richard Kelly, the director, actually blamed that scene for the movie not doing better at the box office. Um, Vanilla Sky is another one with Tom Cruise. Again, the movie that was filmed before 9-11, but came out a couple months after it, where at the very end of the movie, I'm, I guess I'm going to give a spoiler alert here, uh, the Tom Cruise character, a character named David Ames, goes up to the top of a very tall skyscraper overlooking the World Trade Center um, and jumps off. Um, and uh, the director of the film, I believe it was Cameron Crowe, I want to say. Uh, don't hold me to that. Um, again, he, he faced backlash. There were people who wanted him to take the uh, scene out, but he didn't. Um, that, that's, that's another one. Um, and then, you know, movies that actually happened beforehand, the, the Patriot with Mel Gibson, not a Gnostic film per se, but, uh, I believe it came out in the summer of 2000. So again, we're about a year away, um, where he, at the very beginning of the movie where he's, uh, making the chair and he weighs it and it weighs nine pounds, 11 ounces. And then he sits in and it crashes and he falls down. Um, and then uh, fight club, of course, uh, which I believe is 1999 where you have the destruction, the, the implosion of the financial buildings at the very end, and Tyler Durden refers to it as ground zero. Mm-hmm. And then you also have the destruction of a piece of corporate art that was modeled after the sphere, um, which was badly damaged in the World Trade Center attacks, which was formerly of the old World Trade Center Plaza. Um, so that's just a couple of the ones off the top of my head. It's um, And again, I, I've come around to the belief, at least just me personally, that this is coming out of the world of the supernatural. I don't believe a lot of Hollywood directors are sitting around planning this. Um, granted, I do believe that some, if not most, Easter eggs and occult imagery is intentionally planned. I don't think this is. I think this is um, has a supernatural vibe to it that I can't quite explain. I can offer maybe an explanation for it, mm-hmm. but if you actually asked me to pin it down, I probably couldn't do it. Would you think that maybe the people who made these films subconsciously pulled this information from like a holographic matrix field? Uh, I, I think it would be, I think you're on the right path. Um, I wouldn't, I, w- I would think, I, w- I would tackle it this way. I would, and I would tie in a couple um, philosophers here and psychi- you know, psychiatrist Carl Jung. Mm-hmm. But I would go back to, to Plato, the Greek philosopher who basically said um, in his, in his works that the act of creation is in, is in fact a divine, um, activity and of course that's what a movie is it's an act of creation and plato kind of hinted at the idea um that through this act of creation you could be tapping into an ethereal energy force um and somehow like you said subconsciously drawing this down and putting it into your work of art and 
perhaps this is how it's turning up. Carl Jung um, is is interesting. He he gets into the idea of the collective unconsciousness, um, the collective unconscious, and that there are these archetypal imagery images in our in our subconscious mind that are just buried there that we sh- all universally share. And um, what I hypothesize in my book is that perhaps the collective unconscious is not only inherited, but pre- can be a predictive mechanism. And again, through this idea of the act of creation, somehow or another, the collective unconscious is being tapped into. Um, and again, it's subconscious, so it's not consciously done. Uh, you know, I don't want to make a circuitous argument, but um, it, it's being implanted unconsciously. And since it's all inherited, could it also be predictive? That's something that also I think has to be in play here. Um, and again, both these ideas um, involve the world of the supernatural. And I think that makes it much more interesting, at least in my opinion. It so, um, yeah, that, that's kind of where I'm at with it. Interesting. And I, I agree with that 100%. I believe that, you know, I, I always like the word inspiration because it's actually two words, in spirit. So it means like the ideas are sort of coming from the outside somewhere, and as was creating the art form. Yeah, I I, I don't uh, disagree with that. You'll hear um, stories about this, about how artists have dreamt, um, you know, movies or songs. Uh, I was listening to a radio interview a couple well a couple months ago. It's probably about a year ago now, um, and it was it was about the guitarist. Um, with Leonard with Leonard Skinnerd, and he said he dreamt the p- guitar riff for Sweet Home Alabama. Um, just came to him in a dream. So, um, yeah, you you definitely get into the idea of um, the whole you know the notion of uh, the creative process happening into this sort of higher ethereal realm. Uh, call it what you will, a supernatural force. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a, a spirit. You know, you call it many things, but I definitely believe. That there is um, a supernatural, not always, but I think in the case of the 9-11 stuff, there is definitely a supernatural element to it. And again, the one, the one thing that's, I, that always struck me as somewhat peculiar about this, and it can't be ignored, is um, a lot of the imagery, not all of it, but a lot of it, um, occurs right beforehand. It, it's right at that turn of the millennium uh, period, you know, like the three, four years leading up to it, um, to both the turn of the millennium and, and, and 9-11. Um, and a lot of the films um, that involve this imagery that sort of predict 9-11 or have the 9-11 undercurrent in it are uh, inherently Gnostic. Uh, it's Gnostic films. It's Gnostic cinema. Um, and if you're not familiar with that is, um, we can delve more into it if you want to go somewhere else. That's fine. But it, 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 it has to do with the idea of coming to consciousness, to having mm-hmm. this divine awakening, to understanding your place in the universe, to know thyself, as it were. Um and I, I always found that interesting with 9-11 that, you know, you, you could be talking about this whole idea of the end of the millennium, the start of the new one, perhaps, uh, with the platonic year, the end of the age of Pisces, the start of the age of Aquarius. I, I found it all to be very synchronistic. Interesting. Yeah, I, I agree on that also. Um, one of the other films I saw on that list that I was familiar with, and I've actually interviewed um, the wife of him is Blade Runner. And um, and I had interviewed um, Tessa Dick, the wife sure. of Philip K. Dick. And, and he, you know, all of his movies are kind of almost like ahead of their time in a lot of ways. Blade Runner, um, Total Recall, um, Scanner Darkly. Sure. And have you ever looked into any of those? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um I mean, with Philip K. Dick, you're you're inherently dealing with a Gnostic writer. Um, you know, mm-hmm. you're dealing with conspiracy. Um, you're dealing with, uh, um, you know, ideas related to another one that was uh, based on a um, Philip K. Dick uh, story was Existenz uh, with David Cronenberg, which deals with a false reality. And again, anytime you're dealing with with, with a false reality, you're dealing with an inherently Gnostic uh, theme. Um, Again, with Blade Runner, you're dealing with themes coming out of the world of uh, Hermeticism, with the Nexus 6s being um, Kabbalistic golems or Hermetic statues, as it were. Take your pick. Uh, they run parallel. Uh, you have uh, Roy Batty, of course, quoting or he misquotes from an American, what is it, American, the prophecy, William Blake, um, who is, of course, this Gnostic uh, English mystic. 
Uh, he had his own sort of, he creates his own Gnostic cosmology. He's an interesting character. So, yeah, I mean, um, you know, you, you, you have, you clearly have the idea of, you know, Batty being, Roy Batty, the robot being this Gnostic Christ figure who brings enlightenment to um, Rick Descartes. Um, and of course, the name Rick Descartes is a play on the uh, French philosopher and mathematician René Descartes, um, who was into animatronics, um, things like that. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, oh, it's escaping me. Um, oh, what do they call it? Uh, automatons, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, and ma- mathematics and trying to ju- justify the rational world with mathematics. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, you have a lot going on with... Um, with uh with with blade runner and again any any time you're dealing and again total recall is another one of these where you're dealing with a an illusionary you know world a false reality so yeah any any time i mean philip k dick is always mentioned i've talked about him on numerous other shows um i mean he's one of those sort of you know gnostic you know modern day gnostic writers um you know who involves the world of conspiracy um big government uh, Gnostic thought, Gnostic theology that you'll find in, like you named off, Total Recall, Blade Runner, Existence, um, movies like that. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm a big fan of his work. Awesome. Um, what would you say, what movie has the most occult symbolism in it? Oh boy. Um, I don't know if I can give you a one movie answer for that. Okay. Um, there's. I guess I guess with some movies there's there's a lot going on. I mean there's a lot going on in them. Um I mean I, I don't know if I could give you one movie off the top of my head. Some of the ones that stick out to me that have multiple themes going on and just it's one of those movies they're movies where you can like really see it and it's and they're movies that they're great examples because I when I analyze them in the book it leaves no doubt that this isn't going on in cinema. So some of the ones that come off the top of my head uh, would be Darren Aronofsky's Black Swan. Um, that's a movie that is multi-layered um, and has a lot going on in it. Um, I think of Stanley Kubrick's The Shining uh, would be another one that would come to mind. Um, even even like the original Star Wars movies with Campbell's Monomyth. Um, you know, maybe maybe not so much as occult symbolism, but more of like an undercurrent, a mythological undercurrent, um, which is prevalent in all the major blockbusters, by the way. Um, the Wizard of Oz is another one that kind of sticks out. That's multi-layered. Um, that's more well-known though at this point in time. Uh, let me think. Some. I mean, there, there, there's. I mean, there's there's different levels to it. I mean, some of it is, um, you know, uh, you know, ha- has some like really like you know home run symbolism in it. Um, other movies have more you know subtle themes to it that are much more harder to pick up on. Um, so, you know, again, it's, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's such an interesting study to me because different movies contain or feature different, you know, themes, alchemical Gnosticism, but those are just a couple of the ones that stick out of my head. The exorcist, um, of course we're in October, so I'd, I'd be, I'd be a missed, you know, remiss to uh, not mention a horror movie. The exorcist has a lot going on in it as well. Uh, the works of Ari Aster, uh, hereditary and Midsommar, again, um, a lot going on in them. So those are just a couple off the top of my head. Why did these filmmakers include so much occult symbolism in their movies? Is it because they're, you know, members of secret lodges and they're just slipping it in there so, you know, their their brethren recognize it? Or is it to subconsciously influence the public? No, I think, I think, I think, um, I mean, a lot of Hollywood, oh, well, not a lot, most, if not all the Hollywood studios were um, founded by Freemasons. But, you know, the, the, the symbolism isn't necessarily Masonic, and I, I don't think it has to do with secret organizations per se. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think in the, in the research I've done on it, the best answer I can give you is um, it adds a level and dimension to the film that it casts it into the realm of mythology. Um, that's my take on it. Um, it adds it, it adds another dimension to the film that makes it much more interesting, much more artistic, um, and, and much more esoteric. Um, it, it makes it, it makes the viewing of the movie, in my opinion, much more interesting and much more engaging, um, especially when you become consciously aware of this uh, of the symbolism to look for it. Um, like for example, like take take Stephen King's the Sh- Stephen King's Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. Mm-hmm. King wrote the novel, of course. Um, or Aronofsky's Black Swan. If you read my books, 
um, and you read the breakdown, uh, the dissection of those films, um, I mean, I think it makes the reader much more conscious of it, which is one of the reasons I wrote them. Um, and, you know, to keep an eye out for it. I mean, I, I, th I think it's much more engaging. So, um, you know, I, I think on some levels it's Easter eggs. You know, the filmmaker may be paying homage to something else, um, you know, and it's kind of fun to spot. I think um, the filmmakers like to hide stuff, from, uh, you know, depending on the sophistication of the filmmaker. Some of this stuff is much more adroitly hidden. Um, it's like playing, you know, sometimes when I'm watching a movie by one of these experts, you know, Aronofsky is a name that comes to mind or, or Ari Aster. You know, it feels like I'm always playing a game of chess with these guys. Um, sitting there watching their movies because I know I know there's stuff in there. Mm -hmm. It's you know how well can they conceal it? You know, try to sneak it by, things like that. You know, uh, so so you know that that's what it is to me. It's really um, when I watch these films and I, and it is it's it's really impressive some of the lengths they will go to to include this arcane imagery. To me, it's really a, a form of mythology making. It's it's really you know elevating the film into a mythological arena. If that makes sense. Hmm. How about Lord of the Rings? Oh, sure. Um, this was, um, these are films. I've actually, I've actually taken on all of them. Um, the, when did I, yeah, I, the Lord of the Rings, I think I took on in the first book, the three Lord of the Rings movies. And then I took on the Hobbit in the most recent book, the three Hobbit films. Um, Again, this is the works of J.R.R. Tolkien, who was an Oxford professor. Um, he hung around with a group um, called the Inklings. Uh, C.S. Lewis was also in this, uh, who wrote not Narnia, of course. And uh, yeah, I mean, there's there's a decidedly occult influence upon Tolkien. One of the guys uh, who was in the Inklings was a guy named Charles Williams, who was involved with modern-day Rosicrucian groups and the Golden Dawn, things like that. Um, but when, when you're inevitably dealing with like the Lord of the Rings movies, again, this is the Joseph Campbell monomyth. Um, this is this study in comparative mythology. Um, these elements that Campbell talks about in this book, the hero with a thousand faces where <clears throat> you will, if you become familiar with, if you read the book, um, and you become familiar with these elements, you will decidedly find them, um, in these grand sort of, um, operatic films such as Lord of the Rings, uh, such as Star Wars. Um, you'll find them in the Matrix. Um, you actually find a lot, of, not a lot, but some of these elements in movies where you don't expect them. Um, this was something I took on in the, in the most recent book. Um, I, I, I'll get into that. I, I just real quick, I got to tell the story with mm -hmm. it. Um, one of the best movies for the monomyth, of course, is Star Wars. Um, if, if, if the copy of the... Uh, Campbell book I have here, there's a testimonial in it by Lucas, who basically says, this is the book that I used to create Star Wars. Um, and as I was doing this, and you'll find these elements, um, you know, in movies like Lord of the Rings, you know, it's inevitably the Christ figure, the solar savior, whether it be Luke Skywalker, Frodo Baggins, Neo Anderson, doing battle with some dark evil overlord to bring about some sort of, you know, redemption, saving the universe, saving Middle Earth becoming a savior figure. Um, and again, they, you know, the, the, these, these movies, Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, they all contain the same elements. They pretty much follow the same order. Um, it's no surprise. Uh, and as I was doing this, I was, I, I did, I, I did a uh, Star Wars and Lord of the Rings of the first book. When I was writing the third book, I, I started noticing these elements sort of more and more turning up in, in movies that weren't featuring necessarily the Christ figure. Um, but you would find the elements no matter what the movie was. And um, what I did was, um, to kind of prove the point on this, I won't talk too much longer because I'm sure you have other questions, but we'll sneak this in. Um, I took, I, I, I went to when Star Wars was released, which was in 1977. Mm -hmm. And I took uh, sort of the, I, I tried to find Star Wars's antithesis from that time frame. And um, the movie that I came up with was Smokey and the Bandit. So I thought, okay, let me um, look at Smokey and the Bandit and see if some of these monomythic elements don't turn up. Well, sure enough, there they are. Um, you can certainly um, think of Big Enos and Little Enos Burdett as threshold guardians. Uh, you could view um, the Bandit's, you know, beer run as the road of trials of, of Campbell's monomyth. You could, you know, clearly... Um, 
see Buford T. Justice as the ogre father figure. This would be Darth Vader mm-hmm. in Star Wars. And you could also see um, uh, the meeting with the goddess element with uh, the Sally Field character. Um, so when, when you're dealing with stuff like Lord of the Rings and Star Wars, you're inevitably dealing with the monomyth, which, you know, is so transcendental. I mean, elements almost always turn up in some film or in, in some form or fashion. What movie um, contains occult imagery that people would least expect, other than Smokey and the Bandit, which I would have never guessed? Yeah, well, it's not really occult imagery. It's really mythology. It's mm-hmm. studying comparative mythology. Um, like movies that have occult imagery that a person wouldn't suspect. Oh, well, let's see. I would go with... Um, Let's go to the work of Ed Wood, um, Glenn or Glenda, um, his little 65-minute oh, yeah, um, the, the apology. transvestite movie, right? Yeah, his transvestite movie. You have one of the best examples of the Gnostic Demiurge on film, the creator of the material world, um, in the Bella Lugosi character. I don't think most people would be aware of that. Um, let me think for a moment. Other films where people wouldn't think of it. That's a good question. Um it's a little hard because a lot of the movies you kind of can see it. Um, the Smurfs. Um, I was just on another really? podcast talking about that with some of the political allegory with the Smurfs. Uh, the Wizard of Oz. Um, most people, some people are aware that that's a political allegory um, involving the late 19th century with William McKinley and William Jennings Bryan. And you're also dealing with a Gnostic journey, uh, Dorothy Gale's trip of enlightenment, as it were, to know herself, to learn there's no place like home. Um, horror movies, uh, you know, kind of have it because, um, you know, and I think most people are aware of that. Let me think of another movie. I'm just trying to scan, scan quickly, um, in my head, um, fairy tales, most, you know, again, again, you're dealing with a lot of solar mythology, uh, you know, the, as above, so below the movement of the heavens with the characters. Um, yeah, those are some of the ones I would go with. Let me think. Comedies, um. You know, you you could you could find you know like in movies like you know Caddyshack, you know the 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 Hermes figure, the sort of trickster character with the Rodney Dangerfield character. That's an archetype, I guess. Maybe some people wouldn't be aware of that. Um, those are just some of the ones off the top of my head. Um, maybe there's some 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 things going on in film um, that you know maybe maybe you can pick up one, but maybe don't understand some of the more deeper psychological. Um, symbolism going on. Uh, take a movie like Halloween, um, the original one uh, from 1978. You know, they just are releasing tomorrow Halloween Kills, which I'm looking forward to. The original Halloween um, with Jamie Lee Curtis. This mm-hmm. is the one from 78. This is a, this whole movie is nothing but a sexual Freudian nightmare from start to finish. Um, I mean, where clearly you have the boy in the in the clown costume at the beginning, sort of imitating the boyfriend and having sex with his sister by stabbing her. Um, and then again, he, 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 he is confusing. Michael Myers is confusing the sex act with, with thrusting a phallic object, a knife into a woman. Um, this is very uh, disturbing, you know, disturbing, disturbing Freudian imagery. And when he returns to Haddonfield, when he escapes, I mean, this is all he wants to do. This is his sex act. Mm-hmm. Is, is stabbing stabbing these teenagers um which is you know it's it's a freudian sort of nightmare confusion that this guy is living in um and it gets even darker um with the jamie lee curtis character um because she seems to be suffering this as well um she also seems to um you know ha- be having this freudian breakdown um with michael myers thrusting him with you know a phallic symbol at the end with with the clothes hanger um, you know, wants to have this tryst to sort of, uh, you know, in, in Halloween too, it's, it's revealed it's a brother. So you get this incestuous relationship with the brother. Um, it's very Freudian again, where she's fighting with him at the end and removes his mask. It's clearly symbolizing removing of a uh, prophylactic. Um, and it's only interrupted by the adult, you know, you know, the adult figure, Dr. Loomis, who breaks up the tryst by mm-hmm. shooting Michael Myers. The whole thing is very sexual. It's very Freudian. It's very dark. It's very nightmarish. I would think most people may not be aware of it, that it's existing on that level. Um, but I think that's one of the mov- reasons why the movie resonates 
um, so well. It, it involves a lot of um, very, very dark psychology. Um, so that, that that would be my, I guess, sort of answer to your question without going on forever. No, no, I, I, that is awesome. And it's also one of the, the original Halloweens are some of my my favorites. I mean, what do you think about the Rob Zombie remakes? You know, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, they're okay. Um, I, I, the one, the one, I mean, they're all right. I'm not in love with them. I mean, they're okay. That's just kind of my attitude. I don't think they're bad, but I don't think they're great either. Um, you know, it, they just come off as okay to me. I, I'm not kind of sure why he felt the need to do that. Um, some, I mean, I, I get it. It's funny that you asked me that because I've been getting asked this more and more when it comes to, I don't know why, but it's fine. I don't mind the question. Um, when it comes to remaking horror movies, you know, sort of what's my position on it? Some work, some don't. In my opinion, it's kind of like a double-edged sword. Uh, and what I mean to say by that is it's kind of damned if you do, don't damned if you don't. Um, if you make a frame-by-frame -frame remake of the movie, kind of like what Zombie did with Halloween, especially the first one, um, and Gus Van Zandt did this with Psycho in the late 90s, I don't, I don't think they work. I mean, especially the Gus Van Zandt Psycho, I mean, it's just terrible. It's very poorly cast. Um, I don't think it works on any level. Um, but then again, if you, if, you, if you twist it around and you change it, people will criticize you. Oh, well, you, you, you're not make, really making a remake. It's like a spinoff of it or something. Um, so it's almost like a lose-lose um, situation that filmmakers are in. The one that I did like of recent, um, which was about three, three years ago now, was the Suspiria um, re-envision. Um, which came out in 2018. I thought that was very well done. I like that. It, it, it stayed true to the original, um, but they moved it up. They moved the time frame up, and um, they kept enough of the original in, but they changed it around in enough to make it interesting. I thought that was well done. I, I like that. I like the Suspiria from 2018. Probably not as much as I like the first one, but it was good enough. I mean, I, I would definitely recommend it. Um, the Hall Getting back to Halloween real quick. Yeah, the, the, the um, zombie ones are okay. The one movie in the series that I'm real happy to see is undergoing a renaissance right now um, is Halloween 3. Um, that movie has been so maligned and so beat up over the years. Um, and it's really wonderful to see that movie getting a going through a renaissance because it is really a good movie. Um, and it is really a fun movie to watch this time of the year at Halloween. Um, I mean, I think it has so much going for it. It's completely original. The Connell Cochran character is as good as any James Bond villain. I, I love the hero is almost an anti-hero. Well, he's not a, almost is. He is. I mean, he spends the whole movie drinking, smoking, and hiding from his ex-wife and kids. I, I just really enjoy Halloween 3. I remember when I saw it in the early 80s. I'll wrap up on this. I, I remember, you know, people were bad-mouthing it. And I, I remember watching it. And I really liked it. But everyone was telling me kind of not to like it. Um, and I understand it doesn't have Michael Myers in it. I understand people didn't like it because it was kind of, you know, ripping that off, using the name Halloween without having Michael Myers. Um, but I really do think the movie has held up. And um, and certainly if you've never seen Halloween 3, um, by all means, give it a chance. Um, you know, I, th I, th I think, and like I said, I'm really pleased to see it going through this uh, sort of uh, renaissance, people, you know, refining it. Yeah, I've seen them all. <laughs> Like a hundred times, probably. Sure. Um, is there any movies that um, are supposed to be like a cult type of movies, and they just get it all wrong? We're like, we're like, um, they they try to use occult imagery, and mm -hmm. it doesn't really work. Yeah. Um. Yeah, that's a good question too. Um, like movies where they have it, and it and it kind of. It didn't really resonate. Boy, that's a good question. I'd have to think about that one. Um, movies that horror movies that have have it, or maybe attempted it, and it didn't really. It kind of flopped. Um, there is one that I'm, I'm thinking of, it and it's escaping me. Um, where like there there was a movie that I talked about, and I can't remember what it was. Um, where I talked about it in the book where I didn't think it was done properly. And I can't remember what the movie was. It's completely escaping me right now. So I, I, if, I, if I think of it, but there was a movie that I talked about, um, I think in the book, I think it was in the most recent one too, where I, I think, I, 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 think uh, I was talking about where it really wasn't done right, but it's escaping me. I'm sorry. Hmm. Um, how about... 
The Craft. What, Freemasonry? No, the movie The Craft. Oh, you say The Craft to me. I think of uh, Freemasonry. <laughs> no, um, it's been too long. To be brutally honest with you, I've seen that movie one time, and it's been too long, and I've never I've never sat down to watch it analytically. Uh, so, I, you know, again, it's just been too long, and uh, I, I've never – I watched it like one time years ago, um, but I never really paid much attention to it when I was watching it. I, I'd have to take another look at it, to be honest with you. Hmm. Friday the 13th? Uh, the original one, nah, I didn't see much going on in that. Um, I mean, of course, you have the date of Friday the 13th, um, you know, which, you know, the whole the whole thing with, uh, you know, the Templars is why that uh, date is unlucky. Yeah. Um, but with the actual horror movie, no. Um, don't, don't recall anything specific with it. I would have to go take another look at it. Um, but nothing, nothing off the top of my head for the time being. Satanic rites of Dracula. Oh no, I, that's been too long ago since I've seen <laughs> it. No, I'd, I, I'd have to sit down and look at that again. I should point out that with, when I analyze these movies, it's 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 a study. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, I have to sit down there and watch it. I have to have it on Blu-ray or DVD. I have to pause it. I have to be able to jump around. Um, usually, for me, seeing a movie one time in the movie theater. Isn't gonna isn't gonna get it. I mean, I may be able to pick up on some general themes or something like that, but um, you know, it, it, for for me personally, I've got to sit down, have the movie at my fingertips, and be able to jump around. Um, but no, you know, like like the the, the the Hammer Dracula movies. It's again, it's been years since I've seen those, and uh, of course, I mean the Bram Stoker Dracula. You know, the novel. I mean, you know, has some. Stoker was a golden dawner, and they're now saying he was a Freemason. So you will definitely find some arcane themes and elements in uh, Dracula, which you will see translated into some of the big screen adaptations. I mean, the, the whole idea of Dracula is this notion of Blavatsky's Theosophy Society intruding on Victorian Christianity. That's really the underlying uh, theme going on with Dracula. Yeah, I didn't know that. Uh, yeah, I mean, he comes to the to, to England in the ship of the meter. Um, Demeter was a goddess at the, at the Aleutian mysteries. It's all paganism, um, you know, pre-Christian paganism. Uh, you know, the first the first woman that Dracula attacks is Lucy Westerna, you know, West, a woman of the West. Um, and, you know, you will find this whole undercurrent of this idea of Blavatsky's theosophy movement kind of attacking Victorian Christianity. That's the undercurrent of um, hmm. Dracula. Um, so, you know, you know, the universal films, I mean, again, you know, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, you're dealing with Frankenstein's monster, probably arguably the greatest Kabbalistic golem, you know, in pop culture. Um, so yeah. How about eyes wide shut? Oh yeah. Well, this is uh Kubrick swan, swan song. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, this is the. One of the granddaddies of the conspiracy theories, uh, you know, was, you know, Kubrick exposing the Illuminati or some sort of secret government. And he died, of course, right, right then and there, after, shortly after the movie was released in, uh, I believe, the summer of 1999. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, there's there's arcane imagery in it. I mean, Kubrick is one of these very sophisticated filmmakers. What I, what I love so much about Kubrick um, is he doesn't use the same techniques. This is a, one of the hallmarks of a good filmmaker. He doesn't use the same techniques um, in in all the movies. He 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 knows when to use them and when not to use them. The Shining is nothing but repetition. Mm -hmm. um, in, in in Eyes Wide Shut, uh, one of the things he really toys around with is the Christmas lights, um, and 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 he he places them in scenes intentionally. You cannot miss them if you watch Eyes Wide Shut. And he associates them with these sort of, you know, petty evils of mankind, of society, you know, whether it be drug abuse, prostitution, child pornography, child trafficking. Um, and then what he does is when you get to the Summertown mansion, this is, of course, where the Illuminati, the secret society hangs out. Um, it's devoid of the Christmas lights. And what Kubrick is symbolically showing you is this is where the real evil is. Um, is with this, you know, group of, you know, with this secret society, this group of global puppet masters. The other stuff is all child's play. So, I mean, I just love Stanley Kubrick. I love his work. And, um, you know, he's one of those very highly sophisticated 
um, filmmakers, you know, you always have to pay attention to his films because um, they are usually, you know, overwrought with um, arcane themes and undercurrent and symbolism. So would I be correct in saying that that movie was sort of a representation of what people know as the Bohemian Grove? Well, I think I think I think it's an amalgamation of um, just this whole idea of secret societies. The Illuminati is probably the better word you want to use. Um, you know, you know, sort of this global. You know, call it what you will. Um, of uh, you know, the Bohemian Grove is basically their summer camp. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's really not a secret group. It's just a summer camp, really, for these globalists to uh, play around with, um, you know, go there. Um, but it's, uh, you know, it, it's 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 the group in um, Eyes Wide Shut. It's never given a name. It's just supposed to be like sort of a composite, you know, of, you know, whatever you want to use, Freemasonry, the Illuminati, Skull and Bones, call it what you will. Um, it's just what it's just supposed to be, I, I believe, at least in my opinion, just sort of a default you know, you could throw Bohemian Grove in there as well, as well, I suppose, for good measure. Um, I wouldn't argue with you. Um, just sort of a, a sort of default, you know, globalist puppet master-like organization. I guess you could throw in, you know, Trilateral Commission or, uh, you know, Bilderberg or something like that as mm-hmm. well. Um, with, 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 the, with the group in uh, Eyes Wide Shut. Um, again, it's just supposed to be just a de facto um, sort of organization. But it works effectively. Um, I mean, you're clearly into... Um, you know, you know, when you watch it, I mean, clearly they're into the sex magic, you know, of the OTO and Aleister Crowley. Um, you definitely have the darker, I guess, witchcraft theme to it where you have, this goes by most people, um, where you have the magic circle. Um, and this is one of the tropes that Kubrick loves repetition. He loves repeating repetitive tropes um, in his films. I mean, especially in The Shining, but in, in Eyes Wide Shut, he can't help himself. And of course, you have the game, the magic circle, showing up at the very end of, of the uh, movie within the toy store, uh, which I believe is supposed to be F.A.O. Schwartz. And of course, that goes back to the magic circle that Red Cloak is casting with the uh, with the women there. And of course, if you watch it, you should notice that he's casting the circle Vittershins. That's counterclockwise. That's black magic. That's not white magic. Um, so again, you know, Kubrick is... Uh, very adroit when it comes to uh, using uh, arcane themes and symbols and undercurrents in his in his work. Is he in the cultist? Who Kubrick? Mm-hmm. I wouldn't go so far as to call him an occultist. I would call him um, an expert filmmaker who is using arcane themes and um, imagery in his movies. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know if I would call him an occultist I, that may that's maybe a little too strong a word for me um i don't know if I, I, I maybe maybe to an extent um maybe i'd be maybe more comfortable using the word magician um or you know maybe even like a sorcerer or something like that um maybe we're splitting hairs a little bit but um <laughs> yeah but no i mean i mean these guys are definitely weaving magic and casting spells so maybe an occultist um, you know, certainly in tune with esoteric themes, um, you know, using cinema to sort of um, weave a hypnotic spell. Yeah, I'll go for that. Hmm. How about like a um, like the TV series Game of Thrones? I have never watched one second of Game of Thrones, hmm. so I will have to take a pass on that. Interesting. I th- if you do, I, I, I think... That one is definitely has a lot of Norse mythology in it. Oh, I'm sure it does. Just from what little bit I've seen of it, I've never watched any of the episodes. I've seen the previews and the ads for it and stuff. Um, yeah, if you're into Norse mythology, um, by all means, Midsommar by Ari Aster. Um, the whole the whole movie is a um, homage to Norse mythology. Um, loads going on in that thing um, regarding Norse mythology. I mean, you have the um, elder and younger. Futhark runes. Um, it's a very in-depth study. I believe Midsommar is analyzed um, by yours truly in Cinema Symbolism 3. And I believe, don't hold me to this, I believe it's the longest analysis in the book because that movie is so multi-layered on so many dimensions. Hmm. 
I'll throw a weird one out. Another weird one. I'm sorry about all the weird questions. The weird no, I don't mind. It's, um, I mean, I mean, I don't mind it at all. You know, if, if um, you ask me about a film, I would never, I would mm-hmm. never BS my way to an answer. If I get, I mean, believe me, you're not the first person and you won't be the last to ask me about a movie or TV show that I have not seen. Um, and I would never try to, you know, be, like I said, BS my way through an answer. If I have, if you ask me a question about a movie or a show and I haven't seen it, you'll be the first to know. <laughs> Song remains the same. Well, Led Zeppelin. Yeah. Well, I've never actually, I, you know, I should take that back. I've seen pieces of it here and there. Um, but no, the, the greater, I mean, Led Zeppelin, um, I mean, yeah, you, you're dealing with, um, Jimmy Page, I mean, who was heavily influenced by Aleister Crowley. Um, you know, I mean, he wound up buying Bullskin House. Um, yeah, Crowley did the, yeah, where he did the Abramelin ritual. Um, where Crowley did that. Um, so no, you just, you, you, you find a decided occult influence on, um, on, uh, Led Zeppelin. Um, I mean, I talk about, I mean, I talk about the movie, the music industry, the Beatles, um, Zeppelin gets mentioned, Elvis Presley gets mentioned. Um, you know, this is part of the entertainment, you know, industry, the military entertainment industrial complex, as it were. Um, but no, the song remains the same. I'd have to take another look at it um, before I could give you a definitive answer on that. Interesting. It does have a lot in there. Um, since we're talking about music, I, I mean, um, I mean, what do you think are some of the earliest bands to include occult imagery in their music? Do you think it was... I mean, I'm guessing it was probably the Beatles, but the Beatles uh, would come to mind. Um, you know, Led Zeppelin. I mean, you know, the Rolling Stones. I mean, I think you could throw the oh, Great yeah, Head in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Rolling Stones. There's some really interesting. I'm not. You have to read the book. Um, there's, uh, and I believe again, this is something we talked about at the beginning of the show. I believe this is completely supernatural. There's all sort of solar. Apollonian imagery surrounding Elvis Presley. Of course, Apollo was the sun god. Um, he was also the god of music. And of course, Elvis was the king of rock and roll. Um, and the sun um, surrounds Elvis Presley from start to finish, from the beginning of his life to the end. I cannot account for it other than to say that it, some sort of, it's some sort of um, Jungian synchronicity going on, mm. coming from the world of the supernatural. Um, so, you know, yeah, I mean, right, you know, from the... Uh, you know, from the very get-go with uh, the music industry, with rock and roll. I mean, you right. have, of course, Robert Johnson. Yeah, Robert Johnson. To, he was probably yeah, the first. selling his soul to the devil. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, you know, to say that the occult is not present in in music would be uh, uh, completely um, not true. Um, and of course, <laughs> I mean, you can even go back uh, farther than that. I mean, you know, you can go back to the works of. Um, I've been asked about this before. Richard Wagner, The Ring Cycle. Um, I mean, that contains a lot of Norse mythology and, you know, occult themes and magic and sorcery. Um, Wolfgang, you know, Amadeus Mozart, the magic mm-hmm. flute has Masonic, you know, and Illuminati undercurrents in it, overtones uh, in it. So, um, again, you know, you know, this is nothing new to modern day music. Uh, it's been there for a while. So it, it's no surprise that it doesn't turn up, uh, in, you know, in modernity, as it were. Yeah, still is popular. Oh, I agree with you. No doubt. Yeah. I mean, I think the brand that really brought it to the forefront, though, was definitely Black Sabbath. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, come on. You know, Mr. Crowley. Um, yeah. I mean, all those, you know, heavy, heavy metal bands, uh, Zeppelin, the Beatles. You know, I mean, Aleister Crowley's on uh, Sgt. Pepper. Yeah, he's on the so cover. Carl- yeah, yeah. He's on the cover. So is Carl Young. Uh, he's on the cover as well. Um yeah, I mean, so, so yeah, you, you're, you're, you know, you're dealing with, um, sure, I mean, the, the occult influence upon rock and roll and music. <clears throat> the Doors, <clears throat> excuse me, is another one. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I mean, it's uh, definitely there. And again, this is something, uh, if you're interested in this, this is something also I, I delve into, not as much as the movies, of course, but I definitely mention it and get into it in, in the uh, books as well. <clears throat> so... What are some of the most recent movies that include a lot of this hidden occult symbolism? Sure. Um, well, again, you know, movies that come to mind would be the works of Ari Aster, um, Hereditary and Midsommar, overloaded with, uh, with themes. Um, the Conjureverse movies, uh, James Wan, um, have loads going on in them. Uh, 
this would be Conjuring 1, 2, and 3, mm-hmm. um, the Annabelle films, and then The Nun, and then The Curse of La Llorona. Um, yeah, I think those are very well... I think I, I liked all those movies. Um, I had them all here on Blu-ray. Uh, I think um, out of the Conjure films proper, I think Part 2, I don't think, I know, Part 2 is my favorite. So, you know, modern-day films, um, though I would, I'd, I'd put them up there. Um, I just watched the uh, Disney movie Cruella, um, that has some very interesting things going on in it. Um, has some Easter eggs in it that are somewhat noticeable. Um, it has a couple. Uh, it has a, it has a very unique undercurrent to it that I'm not going to say right now. I'm keeping it to myself. I'm going to put it in part four uh, when I do the fourth cinema book. Mm-hmm. Um, so you could put that up there as well. Again, I, I, I saw um, the one movie that I took on in uh, Cinema Symbolism Three was the. Uh, most recent iteration of Halloween, Halloween 2018, that had a lot in it. So I'm very much looking forward to seeing the new um, Halloween Kills movie, which opens tomorrow. And then, of course, we have the uh, new Matrix movie coming out in December, Matrix Resurrection. Yeah. Outside of uh, outside of uh, Dark City, John, John Murdoch, uh, Neo is obviously one of the best examples of a Valentinian Christ ever put on film. So I can't imagine a resurrection. Uh, won't have uh, esoteric themes in it. So those are just a couple, um, you know, that are coming out, um, that are that are out or coming out that, uh, uh, you know, I, I haven't seen Halloween Kills yet or the new Matrix, of course, but I would be surprised if they didn't um, have, you know, esoteric themes in them. Of course, I haven't seen them, so I can't say that for certain, but we'll see. Hmm. How about Jaws? No, the only thing I would say with Jaws is... Um, well, the, the original Jaws, Peter Benchley wrote the novel. I mean, it's pretty much a straight ripoff of Herman Melville's Moby Dick. Um, the only thing I would say with Jaws, and it's more Jaws 2 than Part 1, is um, if you watch Jaws Part 1, um, you remember that, um, what was it they did with with uh, Quint when they're on the Quint. ship? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they shoot the shark with the the um, air containers, the right. yellow air containers. Am I right on the money yep. with this? Mm-hmm. And then at the end of the movie, when um, they kill the shark, they blow it up with the air tank in its mouth. Um, Brody and the Richard Dreyfus character swim to shore on the air tank. Am I correct on mm-hmm. that? Okay. When you're watching Jaws part two, um, take a look at Brody's front porch. You'll find the yellow air tank on the ah. front porch. He's, he's now using it as a, um, gardening vase um his plants <laughs> growing out of it um so he's using it as a garden pot um in jaws too keep an eye out for that hmm i never caught that and i've seen them a million times yeah that's in jaws too keep an eye out for the uh, yellow uh you know, you know the yellow air tank that now brody is using as a flower pot wow interesting um you've mentioned wizard of oz a couple of times what are some of the occult um, symbolism in that. Well, sure. I'll, I'll wrap up the interview with yeah. that. Um, you know, you have um, it's it's multi layered um, because um, it has in it the political allegory. Well, for starters, it has three levels really going on in it. It has the one where you can just say it's an adventure movie about this girl going on this magical adventure to this faraway land. End of story. That's sort of the profane explanation. Um, and then you have the political allegory um, where, you know, the Wizard of Oz is William McKinley. He wanted to use the gold standard to create paper money. This is why the Yellow Brick, Lo- Ro- Yellow Brick Road leads to Emerald City. You know, it's the gold standard leading to paper money. Um, the ca- you know, the, the, the characters, the, her, her companions, there was a depression in 1896. Um, um, you know, the Tin Man is clearly the American laborer. Um, he's, he's immobile. He can't work. Um, and he, you know, it was finally the oil companies that put the American laborer back to work like standard oil. This is why it takes oil to get the tin man running. Um, the scarecrow is the American farmer. Uh, the cowardly lion is William McKinley's political opponent, William Jennings Bryant, who was all bark, no bite. Um, he was a, he was, he didn't drink alcohol. He was a teetotaler. This is where the dog's name come from. Toto. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you have the political allegory going on with The Wizard of Oz, but then you also have um, this more sort of esoteric um, 
initiation into the mystery religion, this quest for gnosis, journey of enlightenment, quest to know thyself. Um, the guy who wrote Wizard of Oz was L. Frank Baum, who was a member of Madame Blavatsky's Theosophy Society. So you had the whole idea of Dorothy going away to this magical world, walking on the golden path of religion, only to define that it leads to the false messiah, what the Gnostics called the Demiurge. Um, and of course, she has to go through, you know, pass through what you would call these Kabbalistic spheres of spiritual purification. The Wicked Witch is clearly the evil female sphere. That's Gevorah um, in Hebrew Kabbalah. You know, the quest, the, the, bat, the battling of the trees, the poppy field. These are all spiritual tasks of purification so that she can know herself, which, of course, she does at the very end, um, which she understands there's no place like home. Um, so uh, that's sort of the multi-layer uh, going on um, in The Wizard of Oz. It's a very complex. I'm just going off. I'm just getting into it a little bit. But it's, um, you know, it's the political allegory. And then you have this Gnostic sort of um, Kabbalistic undercurrent going on with The Wizard of Oz. And it should come as no surprise um, that it turns up in the movie because the guy who wrote it, again, was a member of um, Blavatsky's Theosophy Society. Um, so, yeah, The Wizard of Oz is one of those movies where it's a very deep study. I love taking it on. Um, again, any movie that's multi-layered like that is always uh, worthy of analysis. Wow. I will never watch The Wizard of Oz the same again. Yeah, definitely not. Cool. Well, this was an enlightening episode. Thank you so much for coming on and talking to me today. Well, thank you, Gary, for having me on Everything Imaginable. It was my pleasure to be here. Uh, may I just uh, throw out my website real quick? Please do. Where can my listeners find you? Yeah, absolutely. Again, thank you for having me on your show. Uh, you're a most gracious and uh, host, and it was my pleasure to be here. And uh, if you're interested in what I was talking about um, and interested in my books, they are available in all the you know print and ebook format. Um, the easiest way to find me is just to go to my website. My name is Robert W. Sullivan IV, and uh, my website is my name. It's Robert W. Sullivan, the letter I, the letter V for the fourth, robertwsullivaniv.com. Uh, links there to purchase the book. Again, you can get it in the print edition or the uh, the book, the books, or in the ebook form or print edition. There's information about me. Uh, there's my most recent podcast. I'm sure I will have a link up for this one when it's eventually put up. Um, information about me and again it's a very easy site to navigate www.robertwsullivaniv.com Awesome. What I'll do is I'll put a link to your website in the notes of this episode so my listeners can go there and check you out and purchase your books. Well thank you very much it would be greatly appreciated. Again thank you for having me on Everything Imaginable and uh, I look forward to returning. My pleasure. You're welcome back anytime and hang on for one moment I just have to sure. play the outro. Thank you.